That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Steve Russian, and my dilemma is how to store the eggs in a half-empty egg carton. I like to uh, spread them out to disperse the weight. My wife insists on keeping them in neat, orderly rows, which means when you reach into the fridge to pull the eggs out, the eggs are tipping. And I don't have to tell you that uh, when an egg carton tips, bad things can happen. So it's not really a dilemma, more of a conundrum on how to... Uh, properly store the eggs while keeping my wife happy as well because i know the way that i'm doing it is the proper way okay so the point of this podcast is supposed to be for me to solve your dilemma but i feel sort of wholly unqualified now because i've just realized for the first time that the way i whittled out a carton of eggs is completely wrong like your wife i too feel compelled to go one egg at a time from either left to right and i too end up with a carton that's weighted all to one side once only a few eggs remain So your way seems pretty inarguably better and smarter and supported by common sense. But I guess the dilemma you need me to solve is not really about egg placement and more about how not to annoy your wife. And so the answer to that is if she's been presented with the right way to do it, which I'll give it to you, is absolutely yours. And yet she decides to keep doing things her way, then you have to accept this tiny little disagreement and just let her keep doing it wrong. It is, in fact, on you now to remember that the carton may be weighted all to one side so that you can prevent an unintentional scramble. It might sound like I'm saying that really dumb and annoying cliche, happy wife, happy life, but that's a dumb saying, and marriage is about compromise and both people should be happy. I'm instead saying a totally different marriage cliche, which is pick your battles. There's no way that you have dropped the egg carton more than once due to her method, so it's not something you should really be debating or arguing about once she's made it clear that she's set in her ways and she's going to do it her way. So save the nagging for important things like wet towels thrown haphazardly on a bed or wet towels thrown over a doorframe or wet towels hung up all bunched up on top of each other so they don't actually dry. You know, something like that. The commish has spoken. This week's guest is Steve Russian, longtime SI columnist, author of many books, freelance writer, co-host of the Ball and Chain podcast with his wife, Rebecca Lobo. We, of course, get into the hilarious story of how he met his wife, an ill-advised column on the WNBA that she happened to read. Also, we talked about how this is the first time we have had both sides of a married couple on the podcast, uh, how he was a 25-year-old columnist at SI getting hassled by baseball players and one baseball manager who threw pants at him. The demise of SI and whether it's something we accept, what things to hold on to, and when to sort of accept the passage of time and the evolution of media, and uh, all sorts of other stuff. It was a great conversation. Steve is a great columnist, a great conversationalist, and I'm not surprised that so many of you requested that I have him on. You're going to enjoy this conversation. That's what she said. So this week's guest has the honor of being, I believe, the most requested guest on this podcast outside of um, a couple uh, names that I'm still working on, uh, Barack Obama. Michelle Obama being a couple of them. But, uh, you know, we're starting in a good spot here with Steve Russian, who a lot of people have been clamoring for me to have on. And Steve, as I always do, I want to start way back at the beginning, Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, you're growing up as the third of five kids. Tell me about your childhood. What were you like? Were you um, sporty? Were you studious? Were you outgoing? What What's it like to be the third of five? Well, I was the middle of five. I had three brothers, so there were four boys and one girl. 
And yeah, we were, I would say we were pretty sports crazy. I was, uh, we all got library cards. My mom had been a school teacher before she had kids and then was a substitute teacher. I was the one of the five kids for whom the library card really took, but I was also forced into our, you know, our driveway, street hockey games, our, our backyard football games. My sister always tells the story about uh, coming home from school one day and finding her only doll decapitated her baby tender love and we were playing <laughs> hockey in the basement with the head of that doll and um, so stuff like that was always going on now my oldest brother uh, was one of the best hockey players in the state of Minnesota he played at Providence for Lou Lamarillo in the Frozen Four my little brother uh, was drafted by the Rangers out of high school and um, played at Notre Dame I was not a great athlete but um, we did love those I think I think that's what kind of got me uh, interested in sports writing was observing all this stuff as a kid and, um, you know, and, and then kind of later writing about it. My sister, by the way, my dad hot glue guns the head of her doll back on and <laughs> she became and still is an emergency room doctor. So we always oh my say gosh. that. That's funny. We set, yeah, we set the course of her life by, uh, <laughs> by the murdering her, her things. <laughs> exactly. Um, your mom's side was also full of baseball players that came before you, too. So was that sort of ingrained in the family and appreciation for baseball, if not all sports? Yeah, absolutely. My my mom's uh, dad, his name was Jimmy Boyle, played one game, actually one inning of one game of Major League Baseball. He was uh, <laughs> a ninth-inning defensive replacement at catcher for the New York Giants in a game against the Pirates at the Polo Grounds in 1926. He had played college baseball as Xavier. His brother, Buzz Boyle, Ralph Boyle, played for the Dodgers and the Braves, and uh, their two their two uncles had played professional Major League Baseball in the 1890s. So my great-grandfather had uh, two sons who played in the Major Leagues and two brothers who played in the Major Leagues. So that, you know, that heritage is, is pretty cool. And then my dad played college football at Tennessee and Purdue. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the black sheep who didn't go on to athletic success in my family. Did that bother you? Obviously, it inspired you to write about it. You found your own niche. You were, you know, interested in in the written word and and how to talk about those things. But was there a part of you in adolescence or even into growing up that was made to be insecure about that? Um, possibly, but I don't think so. I don't remember it that way. And I was, you know, I really did. It more had the effect of I felt like I was growing up in a in a kind of Willy Wonka factory of sports. So the town I grew up in, Bloomington, at the time, in the 70s, the Twins and Vikings and North Stars all played at Met Stadium or Met Center in the east part of Bloomington. And when I was 13, against all OSHA and child labor laws, I got a job at Met Stadium <laughs> working in the commissary where we made the food that the vendors sold. And there's all kinds of uh, horror stories that I could but won't tell you about what happened with the food, um, what happened with the with the what we did to the vendors, but oh uh, it was it was Lord of the Flies, and I don't sounds like really an ESPN enjoy. investigation. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't fully enjoy uh, eating bratwurst at baseball games to this day. But we, you know, it were broken bats. You'd walk in, there would be uh, you could just pick up batting practice baseballs that were lying on the concrete concourse, like there were apples in an orchard because. We were in the park, but nobody had been allowed in yet. And, uh, you know, so it was it was a cool peek behind the curtain as a 13-year-old. It almost felt like uh, the guy in Almost Famous was traveling with Led Zeppelin. Right. Um, I would see Reggie Jackson, you know, walking on his spikes in the, con- the concrete uh, tunnel there where we punch in and punch out. 
And, you know, my, my buddy Dan would say, Reggie, you suck. And then we'd, you know, duck through a doorway and, and, um, you know, it was, it was surreal uh, because I'd been watching this guy on TV 10 minutes earlier. Now he, here he is in the flesh. So, um, and then I was a vendor at Minnesota North Stars games and uh, I was so withdrawn and introverted, you know, my early seeds of, of being a writer and being in isolation constantly that I was told at the games, you have to yell out popcorn. You can't just walk around in silence. <laughs> and um, so I finally worked up the courage to yell popcorn. This was at a concert, a Kenny Rogers concert, <laughs> just as Kenny was sliding into his ballad, lady, you're my nice shining armor. And I'm yelling popcorn. And people are saying, shut up. We can't hear Kenny. So, um, so that kind of shut me down again. And, uh, and I realized that, uh, spending time alone in a room, putting my thoughts on paper rather than shouting them out was probably a, a better path for me. Right. Perhaps more career growth, too, in the, in the writing world than uh, the vendor world, although. Yeah, yeah. Although there's, you know, I knew Beer is big business, too. <laughs> I knew at the time that was the best job I would ever have. And, and, and it really was. And, and if you can imagine this, in 1980-81, the last years of Metropolitan Stadium, they would pull the kids out of the out of the commissary where we had been making food, you know, with our bare hands, boiling hot dogs and uh, cupping sodas. And um, and when it rained, we would go out of the commissary and we would pull the tarp across the infield for Twins games during rain delays. So I'd be running across a Major League Baseball field, um, you know, in the seventh inning of a of a rain delay, pulling the tarp, and then I'd go back into the commissary and and um, put popcorn in in paper cups. So. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So you're reading a bunch, uh, you know, digesting all the sports that you're watching along with the popcorn and everything. And uh, SI, Sports Illustrated, becomes a regular for you. Tell me when you got into Alexander Wolf and started reaching out to him. Well, um, you know, we got like a gift subscription for Christmas from our, our aunt in Cincinnati. And so I was reading the magazine and I not only got in my head that I wanted to be a sports writer. At some point I got into my head that I wanted to be a writer specifically for Sports Illustrated. It's an overly specific dream that I don't, don't recommend to anybody. Um, you know, there was a Lily Tomlin. Yeah, there's a Lily Tomlin line that was, I always dreamed of being someone when I grew up. Now I wish I had been more specific because we're all someone, <laughs> but uh, I, in some ways I wish I had been less specific. But, um, but when I was uh, in high school, uh, probably whew, maybe even before high school, eighth grade, a buddy of mine and I, we heard a rumor that there was a, there was a house equidistant between our two houses that had a, a concrete half basketball court, one up in the backyard. And this was unheard of in Bloomington. And we were basketball fanatics. Uh, and there was a rumor that, the guy who owned that house was the former Minnesota Gopher basketball captain and now the head coach at Golden Valley Lutheran College, Flip Saunders. And um, so my buddy, who was much more extroverted than I, he hatched the plan of we're going to open his mailbox and see if it's see if it's Flip Saunders. And he opened the mailbox and pulled out like his gas bill and there it said Philip D. Saunders on it. Oh, my gosh, this is Flip Saunders' house. We would watch him play uh, basketball at the University of Minnesota when we were when we were kids. So Mike knocked on the door. Flip's wife, a former Minnesota cheerleader, answered, and we essentially asked if Flip could come out to play. And while <laughs> she didn't say yes, they did unbelievably, and they were probably in their mid to late twenties at the time. Invite us to shoot hoops in their backyard, which we did. And so here we were, kids playing, you know, shooting around in the backyard of this guy who um, we kind of revered and. Uh, 
Long story short, we developed like a three-on-three basketball tournament in Flip's backyard. I was given the job as the writer nerd of naming it. I call it, in, in an homage to the NIT, I call it the Saunders Hoop Invitational Tournament. Your listeners can work <laughs> out the acronym. Yeah. And, uh, and I made, we made a, a, a trophy out of a cool whip tub covered in Reynolds wrap. And, um, and when a story appeared in Sports Illustrated by Alexander Wolf about uh, another three-on-three pickup tournament called the Gus Macker Tournament, I wrote a letter to the editor of SI, the only letter I've ever written um, to an editor, and said, you know, we've got this tournament that's better than that one. It's called the Saunders Hoop Invitational Tournament. And anyway, Alex Wolf wrote me back and said he was writing a book about pickup basketball in America and would like to hear more about our tournament. So I wrote him back. We became pen pals. This was in the dark ages before email or the Internet. And, uh, and then when I went off to college at Marquette, I would write a story for class and I would send it to Alex and God bless him. He would write me back and critique it. And one of those stories he eventually uh, put before an editor at Sports Illustrated and they ran it as I was graduating from Marquette. Hmm. That's crazy. I, and it, it is, it is remarkable to think of doing stories back in the day required a certain amount of travel and, and snail mail and calls on the phone. And now it's like, you know, I write you a message on Twitter. Hey, Steve, will you want to want to come on my podcast? Give me your email. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like Alex, Alex <laughs> is the one who introduced me to the phrase. I mean, he was this this impossibly sophisticated grown up who had an apartment in New York, and I, you know, when I got his <laughs> business card with raised letters that said Sports Illustrated, and and when he visited Milwaukee to do a story in the Bucks, he he was staying in the Hyatt downtown that had a revolving rooftop restaurant, the ultimate sign of of cosmopolitan, uh, you know, decadence. And so, you know, that had to be the greatest job you could possibly have. But he's the one who introduced me to the phrase, to the verb FedEx. I'd never heard of Federal Express or that (laughs) cool shorthand because at some point in our correspondence, he had to FedEx me something. And, you know, my gosh, when that washed up on my doorstep in 1986 or whenever it was, I felt (laughs) like I was, I had really made it. Yeah. Oh, adult moment for you. Uh, so you're, you're off at Marquette. Presumably you're still pursuing that same goal of being a writer at SI. What was your collegiate experience like? Was there any time that you wavered off that dream or was it just, uh, the, the prototypical writing for the school paper and, and, and doggedly pursuing, uh, uh journalism? I, I, I wish I had wavered from that dream because I was, I was so sort of, uh, single-mindedly determined to, wants anyway to write for Sports Illustrated with no real um, mechanism for how to do that. And no, I didn't write for the school paper. I wrote half a dozen articles maybe for the Marquette Tribune. I was too shy to go into the basement of Johnston Hall and ask for an assignment. And um, uh, I eventually did and, and wrote maybe six paragraphs about intramural flag football that was now being played under the lights at Marquette and, 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 serendipitously, the first game that I, I covered, intramural flag football, mind you, was on Monday night. So I had my lead. Marquette has its own version of Monday night football, and it's uh, intramural flag football at um, <laughs> whatever the name of the field was. But no, I was sort of painfully uh, introverted. And my uh, counselor there, George Reedy, who had been LBJ's press secretary, and my dad huh. said, just go in there, you wuss, and ask for an assignment. And eventually I did that. And uh, and, uh, you know, but most of the stuff I had written, and I tell students this all the time, I just wrote, wrote on my own and it would stick in a drawer. I did that when I was in middle school. And one day I came home from middle school and my mom had 
was had bridge club and was passing around a, a rumpled piece of paper and um I realized it was something that I had written and then thrown in my wastebasket in my bedroom and she was passing around to her bridge club and they weren't laughing at it. They were mm. they said nice things about it and I was mortified, my armpits burst into flames, but you know, in the <laughs> end I, I had my first audience and I realized that, you know, I can do this. Why do you think you were so shy? Uh, you know, it's surprising. A kid who can get out in the world and be a vendor in big crowds and, and hustle people and, and sell stuff and someone who's willing to reach out and write a letter to the editor and knock on Flip Saunders' door. This doesn't fit with someone who doesn't feel comfortable writing for the school paper, where we, where I would assume that you would think you were meet, meeting your peers and, and your equals, people who are also interested in the same things. I, I was standing at the foot of Flip's driveway while my buddy Mike knocked on his door. I was uh, <laughs> writing a letter to the editor because I could write down my thoughts, but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't speak them out loud. Uh, mm. my, my, you know, the Smith song, Ask, shyness is nice, but shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. Uh, so if there's something you'd like to try, ask me. I won't say no. How could I? That's how I was as a vendor. Ask me for mm. popcorn. I'm not going to. I don't want to yell popcorn. That would be rude. But if you ask me, I will happily send you popcorn. Ask me to the school dance. Nobody ever did, and I and I didn't <laughs> go. But but um, so you know, I was just you know, as I say, I was the kid for whom the library card took. I was comfortable alone in a room, um, reading, I still am. Um, you know, the perverse part of, of writing books is you spend a year and a half yeah. alone with your thoughts writing a book, and then they send you out to uh, to talk to people <laughs> in, in bookstores and libraries and on radio programs and podcasts and things. And uh, so I've, I've overcome that. But um, as my wife will tell you, I'm still uh, very comfortable alone, in a, in a room, uh, you know, in a monastic medieval existence. That's good, though. I mean, that's part of the reason that I, as I started to get into my career, I thought, you know, I like to do writing and TV and radio because the aloneness gets to me. And so if if that works for you, then uh, that explains all uh, a lot of your success. Um, all right. So you leave Marquette and you get a job at SI two weeks after graduating. So to all of the young people listening who are aspiring anythings, uh, this is going to be a pain for you to listen to because somehow you get your dream job two weeks after you graduate. Well, you know, again, it, it came out of this. It wasn't because I was knocking down doors with my charm and my uh, type A personality. <laughs> I I had this piece that that Sports Illustrated bought. It was on this uh, uh, pool pocket billiards pool player legend Willie Moscone, and uh, I had written it for a magazine writing class at Marquette, and my teacher said, you know, this is a good piece. Um, I had watched him, I had watched Willie Moscone do an exhibition on Sears pool tables at, at a mall in Milwaukee and wrote about it. Um, and Alex Wolf said, you know, this is a good piece. The editor at Sports Social really likes it, but there's nothing in there from Willie Moscone. You would have actually have to interview him and talk to him for this to, you know, be an SI piece. And so I got his phone number out of the Milwaukee Public Library where they had a collection of, you know, phone directories around the country. And he lived outside of Philadelphia. His name was listed. And I dialed the first 10 digits of his, of his phone number 10 times. I couldn't dial the last number because, you know, what if this guy answers? Then I'd have to talk to him. Uh, I eventually talked to him. Uh, he was great. I put in all the quotes they, as I bought the piece. And as a result, the woman who hired the sort of entry-level fact checkers at the magazine called me and said, you know, the next time you're in New York, I'd love to meet you. Swing by the Time and Life building, um, and we can sort of do a, 
an interview. Great, what a thrill. I hung up the phone, called my parents in Minnesota, told them this, and my dad, first thing he said, which I had already known in the back of my head, was, when are you ever going to be in, happen to be in New York? When are mm-hmm. you going to be swinging by Rockefeller Center? You know, you don't know anybody <laughs> east of Cincinnati. You know, you have to call her back and say, and tell her this. And of course, in hindsight, I would think, why wouldn't I have just bought a plane ticket and flown to New York and pretended that I happened to be there? That didn't occur right. to me. Right. And certainly my, my parents didn't tell me to do that because uh, they would probably would have been paying for the plane ticket. And so, again, after several you know, 10-digit dialings, I finally dialed the final digit of, of Jane Bachman Wolf's number in, at Sports Illustrated and told her, you know, I'm not going to happen to be in New York. Um, I don't know anybody in New York. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sorry. And, and after a long sigh on the other end of the line, she said, okay, I'll tell you what, you can come work here for three months after you graduate and we'll see how it goes. And so over wow. the phone... I was I was uh, given a three month fact checking job. Six months later, um, er, nine months after starting that three month job, a permanent position opened up in the fact checking bullpen. And and so, at the end of those nine months, my parents shipped my clothes to New York. So, uh, until then, I didn't really have a real job. <laughs> right. This is a real thing now. Now we believe you. Was there ever any desire to go follow up with school and and pursue a master's? Not for me, there wasn't. Um, I mean, there has been since. I mean, I, I kind of, not regret, but I, I tell aspiring students, uh, students who want to get into writing and stuff that, you know, I majored in journalism and I felt like some of the classes were, were redundant and, you know, you only have one go around at college and I kind of wish I had taken, you know, art history or wh- whatever it was that uh, that I would be personally interested in. So, uh, but but no, at the time I thought if this is my you know, golden ticket to get into, into journalism. And I'm not even sure what I thought being a journalist was. It was like having a fedora with a press card and my hat band, you know, from some 1940s movie or the <laughs> Lou Grant show in the 70s or all the president's men, all these things kind of mixed up in my head what it meant to be a journalist. But um, but when I went off to college, journalism was going to be my major. And, and um, you know, I was probably going to go to the University of Minnesota. My, my dad said, no, 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 This if this kid doesn't leave, the metropolitan area. He's never leaving our house. He was right. So they kind of slowed down to 15 <laughs> miles an hour outside of McCormick Hall at Marquette, kicked me out of the car. And, uh, and that's, that's where I went. Um, I know today they have to actually drag parents off campus when they drop their kids right. off at school. And yeah, different these, times. <laughs> yeah. International tours of colleges. No, I, I, I went, I, I went and visited Marquette and went to Marquette. It was the only school I applied to and um, and that was it. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't change it. It worked out really well, but it, there was not a lot of thought given to it. So you're at SI fact checking, you get a real gig. And then within three years, the youngest senior writer on the SI staff, there are a lot of things that someone can know at 25. There's a lot of great writing that can be done at a young age. But do you still now with the perspective you have sort of marvel at the idea of being 25 and being a senior writer at SI? Well, at the time, I couldn't wait. And, you know, what? why are you guys holding me back? Um, oh, we I, all thought that, of course, of course I was, right? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was young. What the hell did I know? I was, I was, had, had a strange combination of insecurity and, and arrogance, you know, uh, but, um, uh, but, you know, in, in, in many ways, had I come the traditional way of, you know, being a beat writer in a newspaper or, you know, working my way up 
from a smaller paper to a bigger paper, um, that probably would have served me better. But my God, the baptism of, of fire that I got, you know, I was thrown, Peter Gammons left SI one week and they said, here, here's a Tandy TS90 laptop that runs on AA batteries. You don't know how to use it or how to send in a story, but take this and go do a story on the Milwaukee Brewers. You went to college in Milwaukee and, and while you're there, we're going to pull you off that story and have you do one, a story on the White Sox instead because they're, they're hotter this week. And then you're going to do a baseball story every week for like <laughs> the next 30 weeks. But nobody's going to tell you this in advance. So you're right. just going to have to figure it out. And, um, you know, that's what being 25 is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you're sitting in the dugout at Yankee Stadium wondering, you know, why isn't anybody arresting me? I don't belong here. This is crazy. You know, I mean, do they think that I, I belong here? And I know there's now they call it imposter syndrome at the time. I just I thought mm-hmm. it was it was just me. And you're sitting there kind of sniffing your armpits like, uh, am I am I, uh, you know, uh, you just feel like a like a, a monster that doesn't belong. And baseball, I must say, was very good at making you feel that way as well. Uh, you know, there's a reason they call it a clubhouse. You're not a part right. of a club. And, and <laughs> you know, Jerry Royce, the Pirates pitcher, walked up to me in the visitor's clubhouse at Wrigley Field and grabbed my press tag and said, working press. That's kind of like Jumbo Shrimp, isn't it? You know, and then sent it dangling. And I, I just stood there, you know, like, okay, Mr. Rice. And uh, uh, I was at uh, Fenway Park, one of my first stories. And, and I was doing a piece on Chuck Finley, the Angels left-hander. And that's why I wanted to put him on the cover as the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. And it would be nice if, uh, if Doug Rader, their manager, would call him the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. So I asked him that, and he said, are you kidding? He's not even the best left-hander on our staff. We've got Mark Langston, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Chuck Finley lasts, is starting that day and lasts one-third of an inning. Oh, no. On a, on a hot day, yeah. And so when Rader sees me after the game, he's getting undressed in the clubhouse, and he takes off his pants, balls them up, and throws them across the room, and they hit me in the chest and they kind of static cling slowly, slinky down my body. <laughs> and um, and I'm thinking, you know, this is, what kind of a job is this? You know, my dad works at 3M. Nobody gets angry at a business meeting, removes their suit pants, and throws them at the guy across the table. <laughs> and uh, when I told the story to uh, Chuck Nevius, the San Francisco Chronicle, he said, oh, when Rainer was with the A's, he... Uh, he once uh, was ranting in the clubhouse and threw his pants at the air, and they landed on his Chuck's head while he was following him around, taking taking notes. And it was one of those deals, like if somebody spits a fleck of salad across the table, and you can't acknowledge it, you know. So right, Chuck right, just right. Continued, continued nodding gravely and taking notes while wearing another man's pants on his head, and and you know, <laughs> that was kind of what I thought. You know, this is this is fun. This is uh, super stressful. And I can't imagine doing this for, for 20 years. I lasted three years, um, had some incredible uh, moments on it, uh, but there was never a day passed when I didn't have just a giant uh, ball of stress in my gut when I was walking into a ballpark, which is not the feeling that you should have when you're walking into a Major League Baseball stadium. Yeah, so w- did you think I've made a grave error, this, this dream in life to do this thing I was wrong, that's actually not what I want to do? Well, I didn't. I didn't feel like I made a grave error. I, I, sometimes I felt like they've made a grave grave error. But um, <laughs> no, there was enough just incredible moments that that um, I thought at some point I will have had enough of this. And you know, I would sit in my basement uh, when I was in in high school, and I would watch Twins games on this little white portable TV we had in the basement. 
and we had this disgusting table that we would play board games on and commit all kinds of atrocities on. And I would sit there with my mom's typewriter and write up game stories of twins games I had watched on TV. And now in 1991, you know, a couple of years out of college, the twins are in the World Series. Game seven is Sunday night in Minneapolis. I'm living in New York. Um, but when the, when the series is in Minneapolis, I'm staying at the house I grew up in in Bloomington. They win on Sunday, game seven on Sunday night. Jack Morris throws a 10-inning shutout. Twins win one nothing. And I, after all the clubhouse and all that stuff, I take my laptop and rental car back to the house I grew up in and write the cover story for SI hmm. in front of that same TV at that same table where I used to write stories about Twins games I watched on TV as a kid. So I knew then that uh, I was uh, 20, just turned 25. I knew then that this is... This is a kind of crazy uh, manifestation of a dream coming true. You know, I mean, I in, in, in a very short time, and yeah. I don't know how this is can be topped. Um, so it wasn't so much as I've made a mistake as, wow, I, I've done this, and uh, I don't think I need to do it for for the rest of my life. And I admire the hell out of the people who do. It's it's a uh, it's the people who do it well and wear it well and are comfortable doing it. Um, it's it's a joy for them. I know that. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. You were at uh, Sports Illustrated for 19 years, uh, much of that with your weekly column, Aaron Space. Is there one that stands out to you of all of those columns that you remember being the most proud of or or the the craziest to write or, or anything that stands out? Well, I mean, it, 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 there were, there were so many of them. It was, it was, you know, 50 a year for going on 10 years. Um, and so the ones that, that, that were sort of unplanned, I think were, were the most fun. Um, uh, just to pick one and, and, you know, I guess this would be the most obvious one is um, when I was married uh, I wrote a column about my my wife um, <laughs> that that didn't come out until we were married, and I was, I was supposed to be taking the week off for my wedding, but I I had written one in advance, and we were we we weren't able to take a honeymoon. We went to Boston for like two days. We live in New England, and um, we weren't able to take a honeymoon until a year later, but we were walking down Boylston street. And this is in an age, this is 2003 when there was still a thing, such a thing as newsstands. And we stopped at a newsstand and she, you know, we, we, we pulled the magazine off the newsstand to see what they had filled that space with that week. And it, and it was, it was a column about her. Now she's not the sentimental type 
So <laughs> it wasn't like she was uh, overcome with, with tears or joy or anything. But it is a moment that, um, you know, writing is such a isolated, solitary thing. It's not like stand-up comedy where you you say a line and the audience applauds or boos. No, you write right. something. And then a week later, you get hate mail or or <laughs> people, you know, write nice things. But if you don't leave your house, you're not going to hear from anybody anyway. So this is one of those rare moments where you got immediate uh, reaction from, from uh, your audience, which happened to be your, in my case, my wife of 48 hours. Well, you invoked your wife, so uh, she was on the podcast, Rebecca Lobo, and told the story of your meeting, but I would like to hear your version. So uh, explain what inspired you to write the column that led to you meeting her and then and then how that went. Well, I'm afraid that my version was, is probably similar to her version, only because it's it's the true version. Um, <laughs> I come off badly in both of them, but I'll, I, will, I will tell you anyway. Um, so I, I, I was out with... Uh, with a buddy of mine at uh, at a bar that we enjoyed going frequenting on Columbus Avenue, the Emerald that we lived in New York at the time, and um, and at the end of this night of having a few beers, he said he was going to meet a mutual friend of ours at another uh, dive Irish bar on the Upper West Side, the Dublin House on West 79th Street. Okay, I'll come with you. So uh, we went, and our mutual friend was uh, subletting his apartment to. Rebecca, who was playing for the New York Liberty and and subletting his apartment um, for the Liberty season, because for the first couple seasons she played at Liberty, she lived in a hotel across from the garden, as did her teammates, and she was tired of that life, so she was subletting an apartment. So I was introduced to her at the Dublin house, totally by chance, and uh, she recognized my name. My face wasn't on my uh, my mugshot wasn't on the column at that point. And she said, "Aren't you the guy who just wrote something disparaging about uh, women's basketball?" And uh, I was, you know, flop sweat. I didn't think this, I could never imagine such a scenario <laughs> happening. Uh, and I said, yes, I had written a, a, a terrible column. I don't remember what it was about, but there was a throwaway line in there. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain had just said that he had slept with 20,000 women. And, um, you know, I made some shameful, quote unquote, joke that I had slept with, you know, 5,612 women in the stands at a, at a New York Liberty game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I, when I, when she tells that now I, I'm rightfully hissed and jeered and I have to find an <laughs> alternate route out of the, uh, out of the venue. In fact, she told it at, uh, her hall of fame induction in 2017. Uh-huh. And one of the other inductees, um, came and put his hand on my shoulder a- after the ceremony and said, if I were you, I'd run out of here. Because I was I was booed in the theater there, and rightfully so. So I, I kind of uh, karma revisits me on a weekly basis here. Uh, but anyway, she said, "How many games have you actually attended uh, to base that opinion on?" And I said, "I've never been to a WNBA game." And so she invited me to a Liberty Sparks game at Madison Square Garden, where there were about fifteen thousand people. I might add, I went. Twenty three months later, we got married. And uh, now I have four kids, three of whom are girls. All of them play basketball. And I've been to more uh, women's uh, professional and college games and girls' uh, youth games than than most people have and, and quickly uh, came to, to love it. So um, that's how we met. And uh, I don't recommend it any more than I recommend my career path. I don't re- recommend insulting, uh, you know, but it is a very long tradition of, you know, uh, 
uh, when my kids say somebody you know is mean to them at school, it means they they probably like them. That's a, it's a horrible uh, pathology, but that's how we met. Right. I also love at the Hall of Fame uh, speech, Rebecca Lobo saying uh, that one of your daughters was uh, looked up at the TV and saw men on TV and said, I didn't know boys played basketball, too, uh, which yeah, is we, just, uh, yeah, great. You know, <laughs> Rebecca travels all the time for, uh, for for ESPN and to broadcast games. And and uh, so our kids, you know, they would see her and they would see the games she's calling and they play their own games. And, and one year during the tournament, uh, I had uh, – uh, the men's tournament on, and one of our kids came in, looked at the TV, and said, "Is that UConn?" And I said, "Yes, boys." And I said, "Yes." She said, "I didn't know boys played basketball too." <laughs> and um, oh, you know, it's, so you know, it's not just our house, but in, in you know the broader state of Connecticut, it's um, you know, it's a it's a pretty cool ground zero for for women's basketball, and our kids yeah. are are beneficiaries of that. So you talked about being, you know, joking that you'd have to run out of the Hall of Fame ceremony out a back door. Uh, obviously, the ultimate endorsement is that Rebecca married you after all that. So I'm just curious if you are someone who can meet this amazing all time basketball player and agree to go to a game and become someone who, who believes in, in what she does and, and presumably what she stands for when it comes to women's sports. How is that also the same person who was tempted to write that? Was it just a blind spot that I, because I, I know, especially early on, the WNBA was a punchline for a lot of male writers uh, who didn't follow it or care about it. It just felt maybe like an easy joke to make. Uh, yes. And, and, um, you know, I, I hate, I mean, I can't tell you how much it, it's, it's, come up you know as kind of a funny story i hate it i'm ashamed of it i i see now um you know the the kind of twitter trolls and troglodytes who make similar comments and and the notion that you know that i was that guy in that context it, it it makes me sick um so uh, you know, anything I would say would sound like a justification or a rationale, and, and there isn't one. So I, uh, you know, all I can do is is um, try to be a better human being, and I hope... <laughs> this isn't after... to make you feel bad after no, all these no, years. I, it was just a curiosity, it, it, because it is no, funny that it, it, I think sometimes we don't even recognize those easy things that we throw out or say until we're like, oh, wait, it means something, or I'm being presented with the course. idea that I shouldn't have done that, you know? Of course. And, and, um, you know, my, my last book, um, was about, you know, being in high school and college and going off to New York in the eighties. And, and in it, I tell the story and my sister, I, I would talk to my siblings about their memories of us growing up for these last two memoirs. And she, she said, you know, mom. And she said, she said, you guys, her brothers, told me that uh, I could only play a sport where you where you wore a skirt or you wore a dress and she played tennis in high school and she um, she was a hockey cheerleader and um, and I said I, I said that there's no way that we told you that and she said <laughs> you guys absolutely she said maybe it wasn't you but it was Jim or Tom one of her older brothers and um, I'm certainly a product of that time but it's not a it's not a uh, you know it's certainly not an excuse uh, and it's not uh and it's not like we were a family of cave dwellers either, you know. My parents certainly weren't um, promoting that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, you know, I was a writer in part because 
I could make my mom laugh at the dinner table. And if she had to laugh so hard that she had to get up and run to the bathroom <laughs> in the next next door, you know, that was a great compliment. And I liked Jim Murray in the LA Times. As again, before the internet, my dad would bring home three-day-old newspapers from his business trips. And Jim Murray wrote, you know, the trouble with Spokane is there's nothing to do there after 10 in the morning, but it's a great place <laughs> to have breakfast. And so I thought, you know, insulting people can be a fun thing. And if you can be a yeah. professional smart ass, that's great. And, um, and obviously, there were there were times when um, you know you make what you think are are uh, funny jokes, and they're terrible. Right. You may yeah. not even think they're funny. You're just trying to fill out 800 words. But uh, I do have to say that um, you know Rebecca confronting me on that um, it 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 changed my life. Needless to say, I mean it's it's yeah. and we I talked about you know ask me ask me ask me. She asked me to a basketball game. We're married. Um, it's not. It's not the way you should do it, kids. But um, but it can I have. Be. Uh, it's okay. It, it, it worked. Yeah, it, it accelerated <laughs> my my education and being a decent human being. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's hard. You know, from from being on the internet and trying to counteract the meanness of the people that are on there. I've tried to do less making fun of as well, and you have to be a lot more clever to be funny without without mocking anyone. Right? It's a lot harder Absolutely. to do. And so sometimes I still do it in the privacy of my own mind and maybe with a couple friends, but I try not to do it publicly anymore because it does have more of an effect maybe than you wish, even though though it's fun. I I agree. Absolutely. And I thought you were going to say in the privacy of my own home, but it's gotten to the (laughs) point where you're saying in the privacy of my own mind. I mean, that's true. I don't want to text anything mean about anybody. I don't want to email anything because I consider all of this stuff public. And it's not a matter of not wanting to get caught saying it or something it's it's just a matter of you know from my perspective now uh of doing this for 30 years what did i write that that hurt somebody completely unnecessarily because 30 right. whatever it seemed like whatever seemed necessary in that week in 1992 or whatever it, it's completely insignificant but that person may still remember it and uh um, yeah. you know, we've all had mean things written or said about us and um uh you know i don't want i don't want to contribute to that anymore and of course as mortality comes looming ever closer like a oncoming freight train i uh mm-hmm. I, I i want to uh you know i, I want to try to not erase all, you know, everything i've written is on the record and is out there and is easily accessed but i i'd like to uh you know um cover it up with something good basically right yeah um we, before we started recording, you were talking about uh, the, the job of writing and how it's changed over the years and uh, and even just the, the manner in which you are now writing as an author where you're more likely to be at home writing books versus on the road doing stories or, or you know, in a newsroom. And your daughter, uh, you, you were talking to your daughter about what she wants to be when she grows up. Can you share that story? Yeah, my four, now 14-year-old, this is a few years ago, uh, so maybe she was 11. I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up and she sincerely thought about it for about 30 seconds. And uh, she said, you know, dad, I don't want to be anything when I grow up. And I said, well, you've got to be something. Everybody's something when they grow up. And she said, very sweetly, she said, yeah, but dad, you're not anything. And I want to be like you. (laughs) So, and and I totally get it. I totally understand why, why, you know, they would think that I spend most of my day through this glass office door. They can see me on my laptop for all they know, surfing the internet, and 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 oftentimes they would be right, going down various internet rabbit holes. Um, I did file sports stories somehow from all seven continents for SI. I've traveled everywhere, 
there were weeks, years when I was on the road, 38 weeks a year, but that was, you know, before they were kind of conscious of, of what dad does. And, um, so, so I get it. And as far as, as far as uh, their mother is concerned, they see her on TV from time to time. I have no interest in watching her on TV. Um, <laughs> they just know that she's, she's away and, and she never leaves. She's never home. Dad never leaves. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be some fodder for their, their shrink someday. But um, <laughs> I will say, I always say my kids will complain someday to a psychiatrist that dad was always there. Yeah, she was always there and somehow it created completely different problems than the absentee yeah, did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so let's talk about Sports Illustrated. You left, uh, I believe, 2007. You were there for a very long time and started writing for Time and Golf Digest and working on books. Um with all that's gone down with SI and Deadspin and other media outlets, what do you make of it? What do you? I mean, in some ways, the business kind of needed to change in order to remain profitable, but it feels like the way it's changing is disastrous. Yeah, you know, I, I as of 2012, I, I would you know come back and write occasionally for SI. It's like the, the Mob and the Godfather, where you know you, you're never completely out and don't want to <laughs> be completely out. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, I always feel like the the smartest, funniest um, people that I knew or know are in. I mean, oftentimes it's the only people I know. But we're at Sports Illustrated. We're in other uh, you know sports writing jobs, and maybe I'm being uh, stupid here, but I don't feel like it was anybody's any writers doing anybody who was doing the work. You know, these were business forces. In the case of SI, you know, there's this disastrous AOL Time Warner merger. I'm not sure what I was going to do about that while covering the the Astros and the Cardinals. Um, So, you know, uh, stupid decisions. When I started with SI, they would take the whole staff to Scottsdale, Arizona for a week to put up the magazine. Why? No apparent reason. Orlando for a week, just for fun. And, um, you know, if I wanted to buy a plane ticket to fly to England for a week um, to pursue a, a story that may or may not pan out, Go for it. Do it. And and so, you know, SI sent me to Antarctica. They sent me to Indonesia several times. And, and, and there was there was so much money that when they started trimming some of that and trimming some more and trimming some more, the pendulum swung way in the opposite direction. And, and you know, we are where we are, though, because of right. advertising forces and Facebook and all that other stuff. And, you know, um, my dad, who's 85, always says, People will always want to hear stories. They'll always want to read good writing, um, perhaps. But uh, I'm not one of those people who, who I, I am one of those people like everybody who's always on their phone, scrolling through their phone, reading stuff. But I've also undertaken in the last couple of years. I spent so much time in parking lots waiting for kids at a sports event or to pick up from school that I said I'm going to have a book in my car at all times. And when I attempted to pick up my phone, sitting in a parking lot for 20 minutes, I'm going to read a book. As right. a result, I've probably read 40 books this year, and I'm talking about, you know, paper, physical books, and not not e-books. And and so my way of dealing with it is is sliding further back into uh, into right. you know the 18th <laughs> century by continuing to read physical books, write physical books, and and. Um, you know, live a live like a like a medieval monk, copying manuscripts and and sit in my little office <laughs> writing. I had my daughter make an index card because she has beautiful calligraphy, 
And I just said, I want you to write on this card what people tell me at, at book signing lines and things, which is keep writing. And so there are days when I come into my office, I'm like, well, you know, what is the point? And I look at that card, it says keep writing. I don't have to think about these larger issues. Just keep yeah. writing. You know, I'm lucky that, you know, my stuff is, is still published somewhere. And, um, you know, I would be I, I, I would be lost if I weren't able to write. So I keep writing. I wonder when you kind of joke about going back to the old times and, and regressing to, you know, like the oldest school thing, which is books. Um, if someone said the same thing, like I'm writing my my book on a typewriter because I can't believe that the typewriter industry is in such disarray. We would sc- <laughs> we would kind of laugh at them, right? We would say like time moves on. Things evolve and change. Absolutely. And computers are much more efficient than typewriters. Why would you do that? And some might argue it's easier for me to read this column on my phone on the go or listen to this podcast instead of reading Absolutely. a book. Um, at what point do you say, and can we say this thing is worth keeping and, and, and putting resources in? Cause I think so many of us feel that way about the things that we have nostalgia and interest in like sports illustrated or ESPN, the mag or whatever it is. Um, and, and are we just being exactly like maybe some, some old folks that we would laugh at when we were younger? Uh, yes. To that, to that last point. But you know, I'm I'm um, I read all the time on my phone. I listen to podcasts. I um, you know I watch too much Netflix and things like that. Even though I, I don't really binge watch anything, um, I'm just trying to push back a little bit at the um, my own. And I think a lot of people suffer from this: just wasting time on right. looking, gazing into the void of social media or something um, without ever really. You know, get into anything out of it, and so even even um, you know, uh, if I can stack up ten books next to my desk that I've read in the last three months, it looks like a bar graph of something that that I've achieved. <laughs> that I've right. I've learned something. You know, I'm reading Susan Orlean's The Library Book right now about this L.A. public library fire and. 1986, and and it's all about libraries, and, and and you talk about you talk about old school. Here's a, a book about libraries. Um, <laughs> you know, if you think print journalism is has had to undergo some changes, imagine you know the public libraries. So um, so it's for me, it's not you know wanting to live in the past and this glorious past that that never existed. For me, it's about you know trying to keep my my. Um, increasingly enfeebled brain right. somewhat uh, healthy with things other than Twitter, which, uh, yeah. you know, that's it. So I'm as, I'm as much of a, of a product of 2019 as anybody else. I've got four kids who want to listen to Post Malone on Hits One <laughs> on XM when I'm in the car. If I occasionally then also put on the Beatles channel when they're not in the car, it, it restores some, uh, right. some balance to my life. For sure. Yeah, one thing I've started doing it via the suggestion, uh, ironically, or maybe coincidentally, who can tell the difference these days, uh, via a suggestion on Twitter was pocket so that if I am sitting with nothing to do and I don't have a book, instead of mindlessly scrolling, I go to pocket and find the long form stories that I didn't have time to read when I saw them scrolling. And I and I take that time to read it then uh, at least feels more useful than absent-minded scrolling that's a great that's a great idea and the, the thing that i have to guard against is when i'm and there, i do the same thing whether they're long-form stories that i want to read or even if i just want to read newspaper on my phone um 
But if I'm at uh, waiting for a volleyball match to start or if I'm, um, you know, sitting in a tailgating chair at a soccer field and they're warming up, the places that I tend to have the time to do this, I feel like, oh, no, they don't know that I'm reading, you know, The Guardian. Right. They, they think that I'm... <laughs> They think that I'm looking yeah. at Instagram, and, and there's no way of knowing what people are doing. And, right. and the beauty and the kind of uh, stupid beauty of books is if you're on the subway and you've got – and you're reading, you know, uh, it's probably not going to be uh, – it's probably not going to be uh, Ernest Hemingway. It's more likely to be something, you know, but, but – The notebook. Whatever you're reading, you can look. <laughs> yeah, you're looking. Look, that guy's reading the notebook. And uh, – if you're on your phone, everybody is presumed to be re- everybody is doing something to be, stupid, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scrolling through Instagram, and um, you know, I'm still I'm still uh, insecure enough that all of the books that I read, I put on one of our ten zillion bookshelves we have, have at the time, which is kind of <laughs> my nerd trophy case of hey, look, I don't have a you know an elk's head on the wall. I've got I've got right. these. Uh, these 3,000 books that I've read and well, that are taking up dust. And when I die, my kids are going to have to get a forklift and, and uh, plow them into a landfill. I'm the same. I, I fought against Marie Kondo, and I said the books will not go. They, they spark joy. Um, but I think we've come up with a great invention, which is a hollowed-out book that is the exact right size of your iPhone of something very smart that you can look like you're reading, but you're actually on your phone and therefore, you can uh, you can read the Guardian or whatever smart thing, and make sure that everybody knows that you're that you're a smart person who's digesting that's, that's good content. That's a great content. idea, and, and it's it's a version of you know when people would, I, I assume, I, I never did this, but you could take a dust jacket from a highbrow book and wrap yes, it around of course. a lowbrow book and around nobody, the porn. Knows, nobody knows I mean, the I mean, you whatever go. you're exactly. reading, yes, right, yeah. exactly. Um, I want to ask about your most recent books, Stingray Afternoons and Nights in White Castle. These are sort of about your childhood and growing up. Um, I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast a couple months ago about the difficulty in trusting your memory. It was sort of about, you know, uh, large scale public disasters involving folks who thought they believed or remembered one thing and it turned out that they were lying. And the, the goal was to sort of defend those people from the mm-hmm. accusations that they were intending to lie. Brian Williams was a big one, uh, with the helicopter story. Um, and I wonder, uh, when you're writing a story and it involves your family and people that you know and people that are going to read it, how can you trust that what you're saying happened and you're remembering it right? Well, in some cases you can't. And those stories you mentioned, they often come up with people in sports who did great things and you know on their high school basketball team, and it turns out they didn't. You know, and it's yeah. weird how memory works or doesn't work that way. And it's like people who believe in reincarnation, they were always Cleopatra in their past life. They were never, you know, a middle manager at IBM right. or something. In the same way that uh, people always remember a better sporting past for themselves than, than a worse one. Um, so I'm lucky in that I have four siblings and my dad's still alive. My mom passed away in 1991. But um, so I, I would go to them and get their recollection of because there's so many of these stories have been told so many times within our family, and sometimes they get embellished, and sometimes um, they happen to somebody else. Um, so I, I get their recollection, and it's interesting this you know multi-perspective, rational mom-like uh, uh, family dynamic. Where if my oldest brother were to write a, a, a memoir of these same years, I wouldn't even be in it. Whereas he's you know this godlike figure in my memoir because of our age differences, and he was my my big brother. Um, so that happens, and uh, and. Um, you know, as far as like, you know, in the last book, uh, Knights of White Castle, there's a bit in there about you know, making the state tournament, not because we were such a great team or it was such a glorious 
uh, run for us at Bloomington Kennedy High School, but because it is a big deal as a kid to go to state, and and I wanted to write about that experience. Fortunately, the box scores and the and the newspaper articles were in the you know Minneapolis uh, Star Tribune, and I still have the grainy uh, kinescope like videotapes from those games that were on Channel Eleven Minneapolis. Those things are easy easily checked. Uh, right. It's the stories about you know my sister's you know baby tender love doll having her head ripped off and us using it as a hockey puck. It sounds like something we would do. None of my brothers remembers it. My sister remembers it vividly. And, and yeah. um, we go visit uh, her. Uh, we go visit my siblings in Minnesota. Two of them live in suburban Chicago, two of them live in, in uh, suburban Minneapolis. And we live, we visit them every summer in, in my sister's cabin in Minnesota. And my kids always ask, you know, Aunt Amy, can you tell us stories about, you know, when you were a kid and my dad and, and my uncles and what they did? And so she would start telling these stories. And um, and and the baby tender love story was, you know, uh, their their favorite. And um, but you know, again, she's adamant about that memory, and we just vaguely recall it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's probably a desire to stay as true to life as possible, but obviously you're still telling a story you want people to want to read and find interesting. So a little bit of artistic, uh, yeah, and, rights and, and, there. And, and to put, and to put, you know, to put yourself back in, you know, in 1986 or 1973, I write those books in the present tense. Um, and you know, of course, some of the dialogue has to be, um, you know, uh, recreated in, in right. the best, as true as you possibly can. But, you know, my dad, I vividly, you know, remember my dad coming home from a business trip to LA in the in the mid eighties and and he didn't know Elvis Presley from the Beatles from anybody, you know, even though they were in his generational wheelhouse. But he came home and, you know, Prince had sat, you know, kitty corner to him. He had been upgraded to first class and Prince was the last guy to get on the plane. Prince is at the height of his global fame and but he's still a local guy in Minneapolis and my dad describing you know, in detail, the two bodyguards with him and how the complications of Prince having to use the bathroom and the one bodyguard gets up and knocks on the door, opens it for Prince. The other bodyguard gets up and sits in Prince's previously occupied, you know, previously occupied seat until Prince gets out of the bathroom. And when Prince orders a, orders a drink, he, the, what, he whispers it to the bodyguard. The bodyguard stands and whispers it to the flight attendant, but loud enough for everybody to hear, mineral water. And then the flight <laughs> attendant pours the mineral water for everybody to see and hands it back to Prince. And the bodyguards are dressed identically in, in impeccable suits without a micro millimeter of wear on the heels of their highly polished shoes, all this stuff. <laughs> and so when I sit down to write this book and I want to put that in there because it's set in the mid 80s, you know, I call my dad and he tells me the whole story again. And, and it's exactly as I remember it. So those kind of uh, greatest hits of childhood, um, you know, we've been telling telling for years. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think there's a there's a part of me that would love to go back and revisit, and then there's a you know the uh, the awkwardness of of growing up that makes it um makes it painful sometimes to remember all well, the that's, ways. That's, in which, what, that's yeah. what you want to convey it too. You want to convey the good and the bad. You want to convey yeah. what it was like. And I had a happy childhood, but I see stuff that my own kids go through, and it reminds me of anxieties I had as a kid, and, and also totally. just little things that you can never remember. So my kids especially when they're in northern Minnesota, they're going to bed at night and they're they're counting the bug bites, you know, from that day. Dad, last night I had, yesterday I had 20 bug bites, now I have 23. And it's like they're rereading the day in Braille by running their hands over their, their mosquito bites. And, that, you know, growing up in Minnesota, that's a thing that I hadn't thought about in 45 yeah. years. But I did that as, as a little <laughs> kid, was, you know, count the bug bites that I got that day. 
Yeah, well, what's nice about it, too, is that you have this record of all these stories from your aunts and uncles and whatever that I'm sure your mom and dad have bothered you with before, but you have them in writing and you can revisit them. And um, so it's it's well worth the time, I'm sure, for them and for you. Um, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the ten questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. I can only have one. I probably have to uh take uh geez, it's hard to it's hard to uh choose one, but I'll I'll choose uh, uh I'll choose Louder Than Bombs by the Smiths. Ooh, good one. Uh number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, a high threshold for boredom. I get to sit uh, alone in a room for hours on end, and if uh, <laughs> most people don't want to do that, but I'm happy to do it. I guess you're calling yourself boring, your own I company. Am. <laughs> um, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, there's too many to count, but I do regret things that I have <laughs> written, um, and uh, I, I probably spend too much time dwelling on on throwaway lines that I wrote in 1994 and now regret still in 2019. Yeah. The failure is probably the time spent regretting instead of the actual act, right? It's done. A little of both. Yeah. Uh, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? I have witnessed many fist fights. Uh, I have never personally been in a fist fight with anybody outside of my family. I've been in countless <laughs> fist fights with my brothers growing up. And we have a family a portrait to uh, prove it where I have a big gash under my left eye. Uh, <laughs> and we gave that to my parents for their 25th wedding anniversary. My brother oh. punched me in the face the day before. Oh, I can't imagine the anger right before family pictures. Oh, that's great. I know. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? Does this involve time travel? Yeah, dead or alive. Well, then I would uh, I'd switch uh, with either Lennon or McCartney in 1965 just to see what that was like for a day. Yeah, yeah. My mom actually went and saw them when she was a teenager, which was pretty cool. Uh, number six. At Chase Stadium? I'm not sure where. You know, well, she lived in Cleveland, so I would assume somewhere. Okay. The, somewhere no, they played Cleveland. Cleveland, yeah. And I, uh, I worked at the Jim Henson Company as an intern in college, and Paul McCartney was recording his album there. And I, I told him that, and he was less than enthused, I think, that I uh, <laughs> told him that it was my mom who had been a big fan in her teen years. But uh, what can you do? Uh, uh, well, that's, why, that's why I asked about time travel, because I, yeah. I would much rather have it 1965 than 2019. Right, than now. He's still great. Really nice guy, though. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, geez, the most embarrassed I've ever been. There's, I mean, I, my life has been a, a, a parade <laughs> of embarrassment. Um, gosh, I... I you know, there's a story in in uh, one of the books, and this probably isn't the most embarrassed, but I I, uh, I was uh, skating at Brookside Park when I was a kid, and um, and had to use the restroom. It was closed, and so I had to knock on the door of a stranger's house across the street. And while I was uh, in their house, I uh, I soiled myself in my ski pants and uh, had to recite my phone number for the old lady whose house it was, and she phoned my mother, who came and picked me up. That was. Uh, perhaps not the most embarrassing moment because there are worse, but it's one that pops to mind. Stands out. Yeah. Oh, wow. So often they involve bodily fluids, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, Seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, well, uh, again, where to begin? I, I uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'd, I'd probably like to, um, 
I'd probably like to spend less time, and I think this is achievable given the media landscape you described, less time uh, sitting, you know, uh, writing and uh, more time, uh, you know, enjoying uh, the rest of the world. Uh, unfortunately, the way that I kind of connect with the world is, is um, through my writing, but uh, um nobody's going to care when I'm, when I'm dead and, and I'm among those people. So I think, uh, you know, I'd like to spend more time out there engaging with human beings face to face. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that from someone older. Cause that's a problem that's plaguing so many young people now, but yours is for uh, potentially different reasons. Uh, less about the technology. I mean, more. Don't about get the... me wrong. Engaging with human beings face to face, a little bit of that will go a long way. I don't need a right. lot of it. <laughs> you don't want to do a lot of it. it. Yeah, you don't want to overcommit. Exactly. <laughs> no, God, no. Uh, number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, gosh, if I want one rule that all of society has to has to adhere to, um, you know, there are there are so many things going on in the world right now, but I, I don't think anything um, would be more achievable and and have a better effect on my mental well-being than if people would just return the damn grocery shopping carts to the corral when they're finished rather than leaving it in the in the you know the nearby parking space that's that's i think the most pressing issue and that's what i would change immediately i uh i love that it's a very achievable goal i appreciate that um it's much better than everyone else who says everyone should be kinder which you know isn't gonna happen yeah i mean (laughs) that that would be an act of kindness the pure it would be people leaving their shopping cart wherever that wherever it's they happen to be when they loaded their groceries into their car. Yeah. And I don't even do the grocery shopping. But when I see it, I, I think how much effort would it have been to take it uh, three yards to the corral so that the guy in the red vest doesn't have to do it. Right. Well, I imagine in general, if in life you move through the world and wonder if you don't want to do something, who does that leave doing it? Uh, everyone would be kinder, right? If, Absolutely. if you throw Absolutely. out your things at the movie yeah. theater or the game, like at any moment, you're, you could just do something instead of leaving it to someone else if you chose to. Uh, you know, if I, if I if I had to if I had to do this over again, I would say be kinder rather than returning the grocery shop the grocery <laughs> cart to the corral. But you know, I only get one shot, at it, yeah. and that's what Sorry, I Sorry, too late. You got your one wish from the genie. All right, the, the carts are fixed though, so that's good. Um, number nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? Um, well, uh, I don't have a fear of flying and have flown everywhere, but uh, you know, when you hit a Hit turbulence on an airplane. I, I'm not a big fan. And uh, one time, my wife and I were flying out of uh, Hartford here in a snowstorm. As soon as uh, we took off, they closed the airport, and we got halfway to Chicago. And we turned around, and the pilot said we got to make a landing in Burlington, uh, Vermont. So uh, we had about an hour to contemplate uh, what was going on in the plane. And there was some smoke coming out of the vent, mm. and there were people saying panicky things uh, who were listening to the to the uh, tower transmissions. And as we circled Lake Champlain a couple of times, I said to my wife, why are we circling? We must be dumping fuel. And then as we were approaching the runway, there were fire trucks lining uh, both runway, uh, both sides of the runway. And uh, we had, you know, we had a completely, completely normal landing. And, uh, but there was, there was, you know, about an hour long buildup of anxiety of, you know, what's happening, reexamining your life and uh, going over all your regrets. And, uh, and um, we landed completely normally. When we got off the plane, there was a crew of incredibly disappointed TV news crews who had filmed the completely routine landing. And, uh, and then we're interviewing people uh, as we got off the plane. And we, 
were put up at a hotel nearby, and when we got to the hotel about 6 p.m., the 6 o'clock news was coming on, we sat down at the bar, and the lead story in the news was footage of our, of our plane <laughs> landing normally. So a lot of that fear was kind of retroactive, like, geez, what were these people hoping well, for? Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's um, like that JetBlue um, flight where they were watching their own flight on their TVs. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's sort of the modern catastrophe scenario. But uh, it probably wasn't the most scared I've ever been, but it, it was a – it was a uh, that hour seemed like, like a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and finally, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, that I would hope, um, decent human being. Um, I know the truth <laughs> is, uh, tall, bald, and skinny, which is what I tell people when, you know, I have to meet somebody who's never met me, uh, you know, at the corner or something. But, uh, but as long as we're hoping, I, I'd say decent human being. Wow. You actually had to pat yourself on the back there and you still went with the very bare minimum. So, <laughs> well, you know, let's, let's not overreach. I think uh, we're, we're looking for realistic standards here and not, who am I kidding? <laughs> um, finally, bonus question. Who would you recommend I have on this podcast and talk to? One of the funniest people I know who just has a ridiculous wealth of stories is uh, Sam Farmer of the Los Angeles times is a national NFL writer for the times grew up in Southern California, uh, committing the same kind of hijinks that my brothers and I did. And um, knows everybody will gladly take you on a car tour of every house that has appeared in a TV show or movie as a kid because he's the one guy in L.A. who loves all that stuff and doesn't mind retouring the Bat Cave or the Brady Bunch house. But uh, he is a <laughs> funny guy with, uh, with a crazy amount of stories. That sounds good. Hey, this was really awesome. Thank you for not disappointing all of the many people that uh, requested your presence. Oh, my, my pleasure. And, and you know, um, the fact that Barack Obama is now the next person uh, <laughs> after me. Pressure's on. To, Pressure's to on myself. for me. Yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I really feel feel flattered. So good luck working your way through the rest of the, uh, the spouses of previous guests. That's what she said. Check out our brand new podcast, ESPN Daily, hosted by Mina Kimes. Monday through Friday, she takes a look at the most interesting stories at ESPN in just 20 minutes. Perfect for your commute. Listen and subscribe now to ESPN Daily, wherever you find your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, those awful online ads featuring some sort of celebrity holding up a terribly designed T-shirt that are clear, obvious, terrible photoshops. There's no chance in hell Dave Grohl is wearing that cheesy-ass T-shirt that says, it's times like these you learn to live again. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. They're not even trying to make them look real, right? There's no way that someone is trying to make that look good and they're that bad at Photoshop. Is there? Is there? Is that possible that someone is that bad and that's their job? And even worse, there are people, presumably, who buy the shirt actually believing that Harrison Ford is promoting a Star Wars anniversary T-shirt or that Ryan Reynolds is for real hawking a T-shirt that says, I'm a Canadian I will not sit down. I will not shut up. I want my country back. These are almost, but not quite, but almost as bad as those t-shirts that say it's a Sarah thing you wouldn't understand that are all over your feed that are based on your name or, you know, something having to do with Spain. Very clever. I'm not buying your stupid shirt. Okay. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Those celebrities are not wearing those shirts and the shirts are dumb and the photoshops are bad. And don't even pause from your scrolling to inspect it or click on it because you're giving them what they want. 
Don't buy the shirt. Don't click on the ad. Go to Snopes. Tom Hanks isn't wearing any of those. There, I fixed it. Be sure to check out another great ESPN podcast, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week's guest is trailblazing journalist Katie Couric, who shares stories from her incredible career and explains why she isn't afraid of failure. Download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. Julie will give you a donut if you do. Today's listener dilemma comes from Justin Stamer at JL Stamer on Twitter. He said, when arguing with someone and their comeback or rebuttal is, it's always been that way or some form of that BS, should they be forced to give logic or be banned from speaking? Well, I agree. There are certainly some people who should take a break from speaking, but that is a topic for another day. As for that's the way it's always been, people, you're 100% right. It is a deeply flawed argument. It actually isn't even really an argument at all. It's a logical fallacy that we call the appeal to tradition, which assumes two things. One, that the thing you've always done started because it was correct or right or proven to be effective or smart at the time. And we know that there are countless things that have always been done or said that were terrible or damaging or criminal from day one. It also relies on the idea that the same things that you used to use to justify that thing that has always been done back then still exist and are still valid today. And we also know that that is a terrible argument because some of the worst, most bigoted, stupid or offensive traditions have changed as our perspectives change and science informs us and society evolves. We realize that all of those things were always wrong and continue to be wrong. So I'm not sure what the answer is besides, you know, telling them their argument sucks until they follow it up with actual proof that continuing to do that thing we've always done makes sense now in today's time and is better than any alternative. But my guess is that person that you were debating with is already on to debating with someone else and probably this time using the infallible argument. It is what it is. If you've got a dilemma for me, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, review, Leave the dilemma in your review, and maybe I'll fix it on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs>